We take the Old Testament scripture reading from Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I sit in my prosperity, I shall never be moved by your favor, O Lord. You have established me as a strong mountain. You hit your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. So that my soul may praise you and not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. The Old Testament, as uh, most of you know very well, is filled with some wonderful stories, and we are going to hear one of them today from uh, the second book of Kings. These Uh, Stories, I think it's fair to say, are uh, entertaining. That's, of course, why we listen. Uh, But their purpose obviously went beyond uh, entertainment. These uh, stories, as I think you may have guessed, uh, often serve a teaching purpose. Uh, They were told to teach people morality. Uh, They were told to teach people about the spiritual life. And uh, very often they taught people about God. Uh, who God is, what to expect from God, how God interacts with uh, his people, and, and so on. In the story we're going to take a look at today, God takes a special interest in a foreigner uh, of all people, uh, something that does not happen all that often in the Old Testament, or, or the New for that matter, but uh, there are these interesting exceptions. God, as it turns out, cares not just about the chosen people, Uh, God also cares very much about others as well. So who would have guessed that God had a special interest in a Syrian military commander? And yet, as we will hear, God was very active in this man's life. Uh, Let's listen. It's found in the second book of Kings, uh, chapter 5, beginning with the very first verse. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Aramians, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria... 
he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant uh, servant Naaman, uh, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Friends of Jesus Christ, uh, my friends back in the U.S. have just gone through a season, long season of college and university graduations. And that means, of course, a long season of uh, commencement addresses. Uh, I was surprised to learn uh, after moving here uh, that Europe doesn't pay all that much attention to graduation ceremonies. Uh, I even brought my hoods and and my cap with me thinking that I would certainly get a lot of use uh, out of these because of all the uh, graduation ceremonies that I would attend. Uh, Europe, after all, is the, the continent that gave us this regalia. Right? And, and now I have no use for any of it. It hangs in, in, in the closet. Anyway, I still love to read the, the commencement addresses. And I read them partly because they're funny and uh, often funny and partly because they're inspiring and partly because I get some good sermon ideas. Uh, the best humor uh, in, in preaching and in uh, commencement addresses, as it turns out, is self-deprecating humor. And uh, my favorite example this year comes from Tom Brokaw. He used to read the news for uh, NBC television uh, in the U.S. And he was very good at it, but apparently he was not much of a student. So after he received his honorary doctorate, which is apparently how you get a famous person to come and and speak at one of these events, uh, Brokaw told the graduating students that his professors still believe his undergraduate degree was an honorary doctorate. Uh, My favorite commencement address 
was given by the American novelist John Grissom, uh, who was best known for writing legal thrillers, and he has sold uh, millions of them. His novels are not great literature, but they are certainly uh, entertaining. Uh, Speaking to the graduates of the University of Virginia, John Grissom, who is a a, a Presbyterian, by the way, uh, had this to say. Almost 40 years ago, I graduated from my college, class of 1977. I don't recall much about my commencement. I do remember that the speaker was dull and long-winded. And he did inform us that the future was ours and the world was at our feet. I do remember sitting through my commencement being pretty smug. I was graduating from college. I had been accepted to law school and I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to study tax law and I wanted to be a tax lawyer because I was convinced I could make a lot of money representing wealthy people who did not want to pay all of their taxes. That was my dream and I had it all planned and I knew the day I was going to start law school and the day I was going to finish, I even had a pretty good idea where my office was going to be. And here's the thing. I don't know where this idea came from. I did not like tax law. I sure didn't know any wealthy people. And looking back, I cannot begin to remember where the idea was planted, but that was my dream. I had everything planned. The idea of writing a book had never crossed my mind. I had never written anything that had not been required by the school I was attending. So lesson number one, graduates, you cannot plan the rest of your life. Parents may not want to hear me say this uh, to their children, cover their ears, if you don't want them to hear this, but I happen to agree with that statement. In fact, I would add that it may be one of the most important life lessons we ever learn. It is probably the toughest spiritual lesson we will ever learn. We are not ultimately in charge of our own lives. Even when we appear to be calling the shots and even when we appear to be making all of the decisions and running the show, our lives, as it turns out, are not our own. Our plans, and especially the the grandiose ones that we make for ourselves, must be a source of great good humor to God who alone knows our future. You've heard the old joke, how do you make God laugh? You tell him your plans. Maybe, and this is probably closer to the truth, maybe God laughs and cries at all of the plans that we make for ourselves. The Bible, as you know, contains many stories about uh, people whose lives take unexpected turns. And today, it seems to me, you have heard one of the best. Naaman, commander of the Syrian army, was a trusted advisor to his king. He was a mighty warrior, brave in battle, and he was wealthy, as we know from the gifts that he attempted to give to Elisha. The story even tells us that God intervened in his military campaigns to give him victory, which I think is an interesting or intriguing detail in the story. But Naaman's life was interrupted, as lives often are, by disease. And if it's not disease, then it can be a lot of other things. What happens is that things are going well, and and maybe maybe they're going remarkably well, and then suddenly they're not. 
Why is it that so many of us, not only the Syrian general, why is it that so many of us are so surprised? The diagnosis of serious illness almost always takes us by surprise. I mean, I take care of myself, we say. I eat a healthy diet. I I see the doctor every year for a physical examination. Why is this happening? Why me? I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we should live in you know, and dread of terrible disease, but it, it almost never occurs to us that our lives might change at any moment. That they might become something we never expected them to be. We always assume that our plans are God's plans or that God is so pleased with all of the plans we have made. Leprosy, as the Bible uses the word is not a very precise medical term. Biblical leprosy, it makes me smile to say that phrase. Biblical leprosy is a broad category that includes many skin diseases. Naaman's skin disease doesn't seem to have been the more contagious form that we read about in the New Testament, but obviously it was serious enough. More than likely, it was painful and disfiguring, and and whatever it was exactly, the, the disease changed the course of his life. He exhausted the options that conventional medicine offered in those days. And he reached the point where he was even open to religious healers and homeopathic remedies. Again, this is a a surprisingly old story. If there had been a a clinical trial in those days, a new and untested medicine, Naaman, I'm sure, would have been the first in line. Uh, Through an Uh, Unnamed Israelite girls, a servant or more likely a slave uh, to his wife, Naaman learns of a prophet who lives in Israel, in Samaria to be exact, and without so much as a name or a street address, he sets out for Israel armed with a letter of introduction from the king of Syria. Now the arrival of Naaman in Israel, as you might uh, expect, was not a happy occasion. Uh, The king of Israel read the letter and tore his clothes. In in, in his political calculation, this visit could only end badly. In addition to the letter of introduction, Naaman, as you heard, brought with him a considerable display of wealth, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 Armani suits. But the king of Israel was not interested in gifts for him, this was a political problem and it needed to be solved as soon as possible. Elisha, the the successor to the great prophet Elijah, somehow heard about Naaman's visit and sent word to the king that he, Elisha, would be glad to have Naaman as a guest. So the great general came with all of his horses and all of his chariots and all of his entourage, and he stopped in front of Elisha's rather humble dwelling. This is already a good story, but it gets better. After previously telling the king that he, Elisha, would be glad for Naaman's visit, Elisha decides not to go out and meet the man when he arrives. Elisha's apparently doing the laundry or finishing up the dishes. Uh, Whatever it is, he had too much to do to greet the great general in person. Instead, and this is good too, Elisha sends a messenger to the door And the messenger says to the great general, go wash in the Jordan and you'll feel a lot better. Naaman, who as we heard is desperate for a cure, who is open to religious healing and homeopathic cures, 
this Naaman still wants to be treated with the dignity and respect that he thinks he deserves. He doesn't seem to realize that illness and disease are the great levelers of the human population. We all look the same in a hospital gown. Naaman's disease has revealed a great and terrible truth about him, namely that he is a human being. Great in some ways, yes, but still susceptible to disease and vulnerable and weak and, in other words, not invincible after all. The Bible tells this story about a great general, but you could imagine that a similar story could be told about a business genius or an academic superstar or even a sports hero. If you have read the biography of uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, then you know that Jobs responded to his illness in pretty much the same way. In fact, it was his pride that prevented him from getting the treatment that he needed. It's possible that he would be alive today if he had taken the treatment that had been prescribed. Think about the healing stories in the New Testament when Jesus healed someone. He addressed their physical problem, uh, of course. Often that was relatively minor. But there was often some other concern that Jesus had. It was never just a physical problem that had to be healed, and that's the case here as well. The, The human ego always gets in the way. And so at first, Naaman is angry, and and this is not a lesson that any one of us wants to learn. Elisha, he says in anger, wouldn't even come out to welcome me. If he were any sort of prophet, he would wave his hand over my skin and I would be cured. Who does he think he is? And then, if that were not enough, there was the matter of the Jordan River, Frankly, and those of you who have been to Israel already know this to be true, the Jordan in most places is a muddy trickle. The Jordan River, in spite of how we like to imagine it, is not a great body of water. The rivers of Damascus probably were much better than the Jordan. The the Limat here in Zurich is much more impressive than the Jordan. But all of that is beside the point. Naaman's disease has finally brought him to his knees. And so he has little choice but to give in. The one thing that he has never done in his life. Back down, submit, admit defeat. In some ways this is worse than a disfiguring skin disease. Give Naaman credit for one thing though. He has aides around him who know how to speak the truth. And and, and no matter how difficult this truth must be to hear. and, And what the aides tell him is that he should get over himself and get to the Jordan River and wash. And as you heard, he does it. Reluctantly. But he is healed. And in the next story, in in, in verses we did not have time to read today, in hindsight, I wish I had read them for you, he converts. This Syrian general, of all people, becomes a believer in the God of Israel. It's a marvelous story, and, and... One of the ways it's marvelous is that it teaches us something about ourselves that we do not want to learn. We are not in control of our lives. We are not even in control of our healing. In the the end, all of us must admit that we are dependent and helpless and needy. This is not the story about Naaman. This is not, first of all, a story about healing. 
I mean, I, I, I know that a healing takes place. You don't have to read two or three sentences into the story to know that a healing is going to take place. What gives the story its dramatic power is how Naaman comes to be healed. And it's that process of admitting the truth about ourselves, that process of coming to obedience that I want to lift up for us this morning. Dallas Willard, who before he died was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, did a great deal of writing about the Christian life. His books, by the way, would be an excellent choice for our home groups. In one of his more recent books, he made the startling claim that many of us are Christians, but few of us are disciples. In other words, many of us believe that there is a God, but few of us, and, and, and this is what I found to be the, the startling claim, few of us have taken the additional step of becoming followers right, or disciples. Uh, Willard writes that the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament, uh, while the word Christian is found, can you guess, three times. The New Testament, he says, was written not so much for Christians but for those who earnestly desire to be disciples. The New Testament wastes little time on theology and devotes almost all of its space to how to live the Christian life, how to practice the way of Christ. The greatest issue facing the world today, this is, these are Willard's words, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. In other words, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Look, if you have made the first dramatic step of faith, surrendering the illusion that you and, and you alone are in control of your life, good for you. You are to be congratulated. But I am here today to say that there is another step in the journey of faith, and that step is the step of obedience and trust. Doing the things that we have been commanded to do, following the example of the one who lived a perfect life. Like Naaman, our pride keeps getting in the way. We know what following looks like. For, uh, 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 for Naaman, it was washing himself in the Jordan. For us, it might be turning the other cheek, or loving our enemies, or praying for those who persecute us, or forgiving those who have wronged us. All right, so taking that step is difficult, and, and we resist, and it's because we are proud, and we think we know better, and, and we like to think that we are so much better than all of the Elishas in the world. They make us so mad. When you became a member of this church, I may not have been around, but I know how it happened because it's in my file drawer. When you became a member of this church, we asked you a series of questions. This happens every time someone becomes a member of IPC. And the questions of membership, I don't know if you were aware of this at the time or if you thought much about it, but the questions of membership on that particular day were not questions about theology. All right? We didn't ask you for a brief definition of the Trinity. Right? We, we didn't even say, can you tell us exactly how Jesus accomplished your salvation on the cross, this, this doctrine of atonement, can you tell us about that? We figured that you would learn all of that along the way. What we did ask you was this. 
the very first question, who is your Lord and Savior? In other words, who is it that you plan to follow with your life? Then we asked you the second question, and, and that is, do you trust in him? And the third question, finally, we asked you if you intended to be his disciple and to obey his word and to show his love. Those are questions about living the faith, not knowing the faith. So let me ask you something. We've heard Naaman's story of coming to faith and we have seen what it was that held him back from surrendering himself, and it's a wonderful story and entertaining and so on, but, and I want to leave this question with you today, what is it that holds you back from following, from doing what you need to do? What holds you back from being healed? That, it seems to me, is the question that this story asks us. Would you pray with me? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this wonderful story which has been told over and over again down through the centuries. And we thank you for the disturbing question that it asks of us, for the claim that it makes on our lives. We don't want to see ourselves in Naaman, and yet uh, we wrestle with our egos as much as he does. We are so unwilling to submit and be obedient and to surrender to you. And so today we ask in in this prayer and this time together that you will enter our hearts and soften them so that at long last we might truly become your disciples. We pray this in Christ's name.